Um, I met my wife here, Karen, she's just sitting down here in the front. Uh, and at the time, she was living in Armadale in New South Wales, and I was living here. So it was sort of beautiful that we actually managed to meet each other. But it was through her encouragement that I went to a Christian, a, a workplace, a Christian event um, with, uh, where, I work, uh, where I met Craig, sorry, some years ago. And we've been friends ever since. Um, between that time, though, my work took Karen and I to Brisbane for some time. We were there for five years, as a matter of fact. And during that time, I used to have to travel. Karen and I would both travel back every other weekend to see my children. See, I have three children from a previous marriage, which was a really difficult time uh, in terms of being completely exhausting. But for the last 18 months or so, we've been here. That's a really long context for me to be able to say to you, I'm just really, really pleased that I am here today. Um, even though I'm looking for work, let, give me a call if you know anyone who's looking for a job. Need <laughs> my help. When I was younger, a lot younger, a lot, lot younger than I am now, um, I was a rower. And um, I don't know if any of you have rowed before, but it is uh, it's a really invigorating sport. Uh, and actually, if you want to be successful in that sort of sport, you have to be completely committed to it. Um, and that means getting up, in my case, it meant getting up at 4.30 in the morning, training every day, uh, and that would be including running, doing weights, of course, rowing on the water. These things called ergos, if you've ever been to the gym, those rowing machines you see, they make me feel sick to the stomach still every time I see them, because whoever invented those had some sort of crazy uh, need for inflicting pain on others. I don't know what that's about. But anyway, for me, it's a, it's a deep wound in me. No kidding. Um, but you do all that for the pleasure of racing every so often. Now, I'm sure there are parallels in many sports, but uh, for me, the experience of competing in a rowing race is nothing like I've ever endured before. I, I use the word endured purposely. Um, there are a few things that happen. For me, there's quite a few nerves with it before a race, and that's driven by a few things. One of them is you want to do the best you possibly can do, but the second one is that um, you really don't want to make a mistake that might let everyone else down. Everyone remember, remembers Lay Down Sally in the Olympics that cost that crew. It's, uh, you know, that can happen. So you don't want to be that person. And, of course, the third bit is you, the sheer terror of the pain that you're willingly about to inflict on yourself. You sign up for this. And it just doesn't make any sense. So what happens is the, fun, the, the gun finally goes after what seems like an eternity of all the crews getting ready at the beginning. It takes a long time. All that time you're feeling sick and wanting to get on with it. Um, once the gun finally goes off, there's lots of counting. And usually a very small person with a very big voice sitting at the back of the boat, steering, yelling about how little effort you're putting in and demanding more. You get about halfway down the course and you realise that your legs are like lead and your lungs are starting to burn. The small person's voice seems somewhere far off in the distance and um, it doesn't get any louder. And about three quarters of the way through, you, all you want to do is just jump out of the boat. It's that much pain. You think, this is just ridiculous. Why am I doing this? Your legs are not doing their own thing by now. Your lungs are completely on fire. It's one of the most uh, demanding sports in terms of um, your, your ability to keep your muscles, uh, enough oxygen to your muscles. And your brain is just screaming, just stop this, will you? What are you doing, you foolish man? Uh, everything closes in on you, though, as you realise you just can't stop because there's everyone else in the boat who's counting on you to keep going. 
So a new determination, you basically focus on anything you can other than the extreme pain to get you over the line. So for me, it was uh, the rhythm of the boat. Rowing is a sport of grace, actually. It's in in intense pain, but also grace. You have to keep this thing going. And that includes timing. So I'd focus on the clacking of the oars and the rhythm of the boat. I'd count to 10 and lots of 10 until finally we'd get over the line. Um, and what a feeling getting over the line. You get this immediate feeling of relief because you can stop. Um, and your mind starts clearing and the pain that dominated you only moments before is almost a non-event. It sort of leaves your mind almost immediately. As I stand here today, I now remember those moments, regardless of the wins or losses, as some of the best and happiest in my life, despite the trauma I just described. But that's only because of time. Time immediately after the event and also a lifetime of reflection. You see, with time comes perspective um, that we can't always grasp in the moment. And you can't necessarily grasp that if you don't have the bigger picture. In today's passage we're looking at, uh, the look that we're looking at today is all about God's perspective of time and how God relates to us in the different phases of life we're all going to experience. Ecclesiastes is a book written by uh, King Solomon's son, oh, sorry, King David uh, Solomon, who was his son, who had his uh, crown passed to him through a birthright. He ruled at a time known as Uniting Kingdom, United Kingdom of Israel, which is considered the most prosperous time to this day for the Israel nation. He is wealthy and respected as wise, not unlike how we consider other people today who are wealthy. For some reason, we think that brings along wisdom with them as well. Um, in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he's referred to as teacher, which at the time was uh, an acclamation reserved for those who were only the most respected and someone to be listened to. Their perspective was important. So chapters 1 and 2 give us a very important context for chapter 3. The opening line of the book of Ecclesiastes is meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's easy to simply skip over that introduction and just get on with the rest of the chapter. But for me, I can't help but feel um, the emotion that was being expressed in that opening by a wise man, by somebody who we're meant to listen to. And for, for me, if you were to say that in a different term, like, meaningless, meaningless, that's the sort of thing I would want to yell out in a moment of pure frustration uh, and disappointment. Um, it might be like an AFL grand final loss that's not, long, not that long ago. Solomon does, goes on to examine the fruits of his labour and what, is all, what, it all, what it's all come to. This includes studying to become wiser than any leader that's or, or ruler that's come before him, enjoying any pleasure he puts his mind to. He built houses, he planted vineyards, he made gardens and parks, he built uh, reservoirs. I'm a civil engineer, so I know that is invigorating. Um, owned vast herds and flocks, um, greater than anyone before him. He amassed silver and gold, which amassed means collected for yourself. This was all for himself. He had singers and he had a harem. I guess a lot of people would relish that uh, even today. Um, in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
In other words, King Solomon had had, had had what the world would perceive as an amazingly successful life, marked with pleasure, respect and wealth. You might say he's the ancient equivalent of a Jeff Bezos or like a, I guess, a um, Elon Musk today who are considered, you know, we hold them up as these incredible individuals that have managed to achieve something, wealth, status, and he's one of those guys. He's one of those people that we would hold up as a, to a high light as having an amazing life. A recent report said that 10 wealthiest men had enough wealth to pay for the entire planet to be uh, vaccinated against COVID-19. It's an incredible level of wealth. The fruits of his labour were vast, but yet in the moment he's still dissatisfied. In the, four, in the first two chapters alone, Solomon uses the word meaningless to describe how he's feeling more than 13 times. So if a guy like this, who looks like he's got it all together, is still struggling with the meaning of life, what hope do we have at happiness in this life? So we look at today's passage in the opening verses. Solomon is wrestling still with life's twists and turns. He opens by saying there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. He captures just about every type of human experience we can expect to have for our lifetime. But there seems like a bit of a tug of war going on between good and bad or even good and evil. The positive or uplifting idea is immediately counted by the exact opposite. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Of course, who'd believe that that was relevant today? That was written more than 2,000 years ago, that there's a time when you wouldn't be embracing. Our modern worldview in the West is heavily weighted towards the positive side of this narrative. So if you've been to school in the last 100 years like we all have, you've pretty much been taught you can be whatever you want to be. or dream. You, you can dream it and it's going to happen for you somehow. All you have to do is you just need to identify a life's purpose. Well, good luck with that. How's everyone going with that one? I'm still, I'm 51 and I still don't know exactly what I'm meant to be doing for a living, um, if that's my life purpose. Um, have a plan. Believe in yourself. Add hard work. Ignore the naysayers and voila, you're going to have success, right? It's that simple. Of course, one of the most well-known thinkers, Mike Tyson, the ear-biting boxer, uh, profoundly said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's understandable, of course, because we like to think that we have some control over how our lives and how they're going to play out. I know that, for instance, if I can afford to have a portion of my salary automatically put into a separate bank account, I'm likely to save some money. I know that, right? I have control over it. I like to think I have control over those resources. Um, I also know that having the extra money increases my temptation to find happiness in some way usually materially. I'm just giving myself a little bit of a reward for all the wonderful work I've done, being so self-disciplined and having so much control over my life. You see, I like to think I have control of what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. And of course, we're always working for good things, aren't we? Good outcomes. But it's just not possible to experience only good things. Solomon is saying that we can expect to experience all sorts of good and not so great things in life. Life is going to happen to us and in verse 9 and 10 it becomes very clear what to expect. What do workers gain from their toil? 
I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. So just before I get too far down the track, what does toil actually mean? I always thought of it just toiling's going to work. No, there's there's some. My wife's an English teacher, so I thought I'd look in the dictionary, of course, and just have a good look at what. It, there's actually two meanings. There's a verb. There's a verb meaning. And there's a noun meaning. So the verb meaning is to work extremely hard or incessantly. Now, incessantly is kind of not very productive and not very fruitful. But the uh, the actual noun meaning meaning of it is exhaustive physical labour. Exhaustive physical labour. This is not just uh, going to a nice office that's air-conditioned, having lattes and cups of coffee. We've all done that through the day. This is about we've been called to talk. We're expected that we're going to be having exhaustive physical labour or working extremely hard or incessantly. It's basically saying we have to work hard in this life. Things will get difficult, be a burden as a matter of fact. How is this sustainable? We really only want the good things, right? As humans, we put a huge amount of energy into chasing after things, good things, and expecting a return. I know I expect a return if I put effort in. And this is where we're introduced to God's perspective on time. It's well known that the Bible uses the ancient Greek to describe time. You know, Kronos, which is now in this moment, and Kairos, which actually means the right time, or in this case, in God's time. In God's time frame, the immediate consequence of circumstance we find ourselves in it, during our predictable life journey, that is, we're going to have good times and we're going to have struggles and challenges, is temporary and, the, and, the, and often has meaning that we can't understand in the moment. As an example, if I was only living in the moment when I was a rower, I would have jumped out of the boat. I would have stopped doing that to myself. Um, if I only have myself to consider. But the tragedy that would have been if I had done that, I'd have never known the joy and the experience of the finish, of the great relief and the feeling that brought me and the feeling of satisfaction of having gone through that trial, regardless of the outcome, it was a good thing. The passage goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity on the hum- in the human heart. This is a big clue for us that God has a plan, a plan for good, even if you are suffering. Imagine being Job, God's faithful servant, went through almost a lifetime of significant and long-lasting persecution and turmoil. It would have been hard to find any purpose in his suffering at that moment. Yet thousands of years later, lots and lots of people, I know myself for one, are being blessed by his life experience every day, just about having that unfailing trust and faith in God, you know. Um, He has made everything beautiful in its time, even if we can't see that. Verse 11 goes on to say, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is sovereign. It means that even in the most difficult circumstances, God has a plan a plan that we can trust in him and his perfect timing. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope at a future. So as Christians, when we find ourselves toiling or living with suffering, it could be your job you hate or dislike. It might be an illness you have in your family 
or an illness of your own. And we, the guys are going to meet and talk about cancer and faith. You know, that happens. Um, or some kind of financial setback. How are we to respond in that moment, in the Kronos moment, when we can't necessarily see the big picture or understand why? As we know, Solomon's stuck on meaningless. It's such a waste of time to keep toiling. There's no point. That's after he's had everything his heart desires. Everything. He denied himself absolutely nothing and he's still feeling like it's meaningless. He seems to be suffering in his success. It reminds me of being a parent. We know that giving a child everything at once with no boundaries always ends up in disaster and unsurprisingly tears. In verses 12 and 13, we learn that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is a gift from God. Toil or exhaustive physical labour and happiness. How do they go together? How do they go together? A while ago, I used to run an engineering company in Sydney, actually, um, one of its key jobs is to fix sewers. I'm a civil engineer. We do pipes and roads and bridges. But um, water and sewer is a really p big part of what makes our society so prosperous, actually. Um, which is funny to connect number ones and twos with prosperity, but it is true. Uh, <laughs> and so what, the way sewers are designed is that they, they, um, they don't always run in the street. So water often runs in the street, but for... Sewer, it often runs through your backyard because if you're on a hill like this, it has to run down with gravity. What that means is because half the system is in people's backyards, you can't necessarily get to it easily. You've often got to do that work by hand. Um, and you can imagine it's back-breaking work and it's not all that pleasant once you've finished digging the hole either um, to get down to the sewer. I was lucky enough to have a crew that we used to call the Greeks. Now, I know that's not necessarily PC these days, but these guys... We new Australians. Uh, English was their second language. They were from Greece and they were about, they're in their 60s. But these guys were incredible. They were true craftsmen and um, they loved what they did. They were the most productive and well-loved crew. And I want to say well-loved not just by me because they were productive and made money. They were loved by anyone that came in contact with them, the customer in the house, that time we were working for Sydney Water, which was like SA Water. Everyone loved these guys. And that's because when you came anywhere near them, there was always a sense of joy and thanksgiving. Anyway, so we often uh, think, well, these guys are really productive. We need to pass this on to the next generation. So we'd, we'd key up some young guys with these older crews to try and help them teach their craft to them. You know, Unfortunately, it was never successful. And the story would be almost the same every time. The young guy would turn up, wondering why I'd been put with the old guys in the first place. He'd start digging, trying to prove himself, you know, the old young bull versus the old bull um, scenario. By, by Smoko, which is at 9am, he starts, starts work at 7, he's fed up, the young guy that is. By lunchtime, the young guy would often be what we refer to as a grease spot under the tree, completely exhausted. The Greeks, however, still fresh as a daisy, usually telling jokes. The young guys could never understand how the old guys could do this day in and day out, let alone with a smile on their face. It's because they weren't focused on their toil. They were focused more on their journey. 
They had a perspective that was greater than smoko or lunch. They had definitely honed their skills and believe me when I tell you digging a hole by hand to three metres takes a huge amount of skill and it's a rare skill. But they seemed to be at peace and to have found happiness in their exhausting physical labour. They had an attitude of thankfulness. Well, these guys weren't necessarily Christians. They just were, they enjoyed, they enjoyed their work and they enjoyed what was around their work. We're also given advice on how to toil in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 4 verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition present and thanksgiving, present your request to God. It's clear. We're to give thanks and praise to God regardless of the circumstance we're in. It's sound advice because we really have no idea how long we'll be in any circumstance, whether it's good or bad. If you're prosperous right now or you're wealthy or you have a great job, you actually don't know how long that's going to last. You can also spend a lot of time humping about uh, where you are, looking over the fence, always feeling hard done by, and most likely missing the joy that God has for you to experience in that moment. A lot of the time, it's right under your nose. If you're lucky enough to have children, when you walk through the door, they don't care what sort of day you've had. They're just usually glad to see you. Uh, we've got a little dog called Bernie. He's just, he doesn't know what's going on. He just loves me regardless. Even if I mistreat him, he really loves me. He doesn't get it. And there are little things around you that, um, that are a blessing every moment. It's a bit like laughing at Smoko. We also know that having everything we would desire all the time is just not good for us. Maybe toil actually helps us get satisfaction from other things in life. God knows us. He knows our hearts. Thankfulness in God is a muscle we have to exercise, even when at first we just don't feel like it. In verse 14 and 15, we're again invited into God's realm. I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. In verse 15, Whatever has, is has already been and whatever will be has been before. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. It's an eternal perspective with no time bounds at all but God's time. This part of the passage is really saying nothing we do hasn't been done or experienced before even though we might feel that our circumstances are completely unique and no one else could possibly understand my suffering, God understands. He's seen it all before. And we know God knows suffering, right? He suffered for us in a way that we'll never have to experience. Jesus has taken all the suffering we deserve as sinners upon himself on the cross and offers us grace and salvation. All we have to do is say yes. You might be saying, well, that's great, but I'm still struggling with why suffering is allowed to be a thing at all. Now, the word thing is calling out my daughter who's 21, as a thing being a thing at all. And it's a, it's a struggle I've had with myself and with her to, to describe, well, why is it that God allows suffering? such a common question 
that people asked to try and bring down the idea of faith in Christianity. Tim Keller, who's a theologian, author and long-time pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, says, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you become more like him. The gospel does not promise you a better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. Just to finish, I want you to imagine walking through life and knowing exactly how everything is going to end. And it bring quite a different perspective to just about everything and every decision you made or experienced. What I didn't tell you about my rowing days is that uh, my career came to quite an abrupt end. Mine along with the whole crew that I was rowing with and the, that crew I'd spent years um, perfecting our our skills and our fitness to be able to, to do what we were doing. Uh, it, was, it was a bit of a tragedy, really. We'd worked together for years to become the state champions in our division. We weren't a top division competing crew. We were in, like, the third division, but we're still very competitive. Um, and, I mean, we worked. We worked for six days a week. I'd describe getting up at 4.30 in the morning on the water, hours of training, lots of weekends, lots of ergos, which were... Horrible, horrible thing we used to do on Saturday morning. Um, and lots of weekends dedicated to regattas. It all came to an end on the glistening waters of Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra, our, our capital. We'd made the finals at a shot of becoming, uh, at a shot of the championship. We'd never felt so strong and fit. And that was, uh, and that was after our qualifying race. So you've got, to, you've got to row a race before you get to the final. We'd row that qualifying race and we felt amazingly strong and confident. We're drawn the outside lane, so in a rowing race there's eight lanes and there's two outside lanes as you can imagine, and we're in one of them. Um, the gun went off and uh, we headed down the course, still feeling strong and leading the race. We're actually out in front by about half a boat length, which was a long way. An official came up behind us and, and ordered us to steer to port to avoid collision with the crew next to us, which we did. For three strong strokes, I was steering from the bow of the boat. Um, as I looked over my shoulder to make sure we were out of harm's way, uh, we were headed off into no man's land. So the rest of the race was going that way and we'd, gone, we'd reacted so strongly to being told to steer out of the way that we'd gone right off course. And that was partly brought about because um, only a couple of weeks before we'd actually crashed into the crew that we were trying not to crash into in this race. So it was really searingly clear in our minds that we didn't want to do that again. Anyway, after veering off to the left, it was, it was really clear that we weren't going to win the race. As a matter of fact, we ended up coming, we, en we ended up going from being the favourite and in front to coming last and being the butt of some really clumsy jokes by the race commentator for the entire crowd to hear. As you can imagine, we were devastated and humiliated as well. And we never rode another stroke together again after that day. What a waste. It was such a small, silly mistake. We'd rode dozens of races, spent thousands of hours in the water together, and we threw it away after one mistake. Or was it? Now imagine if I'd known that was going to be the end when I started rowing. It would have affected everything I did, even the level of effort, or my level of care, I may, not, I may have even decided not to bother. Now, what a tragedy that would have been. 
I would have missed out on what I now see as some of the happiest days of my life, despite the disappointment. That experience has shaped who I am today through God and how I deal with disappointment and success in the moment and trusting God's perspective. As Christians, we all know how this ends. We have the advantage of the, the, of the eternal perspective laid out for us through Jesus. We know this life is just part of our journey with Christ into eternity. And we get to walk that journey alongside and with a loving Father who only wants, only has the best for us in his plan. A plan is better than anything we could imagine for ourselves. So today, are you in the middle of a struggle? As a matter of fact, when I wrote this sermon, I was gainfully employed. You know, I'm struggling right now. I'm not asking for sympathy, but just how things can turn so quickly from being fine one day and not the next. What's going to be your response? Is your perspective too nearsighted? Thinking too much about smoke oak. Can you ask, you can ask God to help you step back, pause, and trust in his perspective, his eternal perspective, having faith in his perspective. Try giving thanks even though you may not feel like it. I know it's not always easy to accept struggle, but I do know that taking a step of faith in God's direction towards God's perspective always bears fruit. Even the smallest step of faith is there just waiting for you. I'm not sure. A lot of people go to church for a long time and can be unsure about their eternal perspective or where they're going to end up. And um, I urge you today, <clears throat> I love the fact you guys pray for each other in the house. It's awesome. Um, and I just urge you, if you're that person, if you're just wondering where you're standing with God, don't waste another day or another second. Go and find someone, pray with them, read the Bible and receive his grace and salvation and his ultimate plan for all of us, which is good. Let's pray. Father, Lord, just thank you so much for your word, your son, Jesus, and the fact that you just took our sins on yourself that we wouldn't have to suffer. Lord, we just pray for those that are suffering, Lord, that they would um, have the courage to reach out to you, Lord, to seek your perspective and have faith in your plan for them, a plan for good, a plan to prosper us. And Lord, we just thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.